Hello, everyone. All right, so today's Bible reading is from Exodus. Uh, We've got a couple Bible readings this morning. The first one is from Exodus chapter 13, verses 17. uh, Sorry, verses 17, and it will go through to chapter 14, verse 14. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near pi har between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Siphon. Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and he took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near pi har opposite Baal-Siphon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. 
The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The second reading is um, also in chapter 14, uh, starting from verse 26, and it will go through to chapter 15, verse 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The the water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. Feel free to go to the hub, get the talk outline, everybody, and uh, open your Bibles up. We'll begin in just a few moments in this exciting part of Exodus. You know, singing plays a important, big part in our lives. You may not know, in fact, none of you know, that when I was in year 12, I was in a high school band, and we wrote songs about our year at school, and they became the anthem of our year 12. I was a drummer, and the whole school knew our songs. And we rewrote them all, and we performed them, we went to competitions, and it was great. And we, we were the anthem of the school, and I was part of that. And songs played a big part in our year 12. Dating Natasha, the offspring was our song, our band of choice. Yeah. You can tell that I grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, 
Natasha's dad would sing this song to her. You can turn it up louder, Alex. Van Morrison. Ah, thank you. And then Grandpa, as he's called, um, now sings this song to his granddaughters. It's a lovely song. You may know it. Flower Girl by the Cow Seals. And then when we got married, you walk down the aisle afterwards and everyone cheers and we decided to sing, or to walk down the aisle to this particular song. It's song two by Blur. And now we love to dance to a, a much different song, but we were married at night, I was married at 19 and Natasha was 21, so this song is so fitting for us. I never knew you were the someone waiting for me Cause we were just kids when we fell in love Not knowing what it was Songs play a big part in our lives And that's just some songs that play a big part in my life I'm sure you can relate But you know there's, there's victory songs too There's a song that none of you have heard for a long time some of you are very thankful you've never heard this song, and others of you could not wait to hear it again. This is the song. It took 13 months to hear this. You ready? We're the pride of South Australia, and we're known as the Adelaide Crows. We're courageous, stronger, faster. It's very fitting that Sharon is wearing her crow's top today in light of that. And I want to correct Jeff, who preached to us the last three weeks. They have, Adelaide has won two grand finals back-to-back, 97, 98, for those of you playing along in the New South Wales and Victorian teams that don't believe in that, we did win it. Um, and I just said we, which sounds like I support footy, but I don't. And I said we like it's my team, but they're not. Anyway, it's what we do. Anyway, songs play a big part. And, and songs play have a unique part in the Christian story as well. Mark Peterson, who many of you may know from Trinity Church Adelaide, he was the music director there for a number of years. He has written many songs, and we sing some of them today. And he said this, that you can think a thought, you can feel a feeling, but songs enable you to feel a thought. You can think a thought, you can feel a feeling, but songs enable you to feel a thought. Music and song, they excite our religious affections, says Jonathan Edwards in the 16th century. Through singing, we engage with God's word. God sings, Jesus sang, and creation will sing God's praise for all eternity. And so if music is a right, good response for times in our life, the question I want to ask you today, and we'll kick around this question in Exodus 13 to 15, is how should we sing in response to God? How should you and me sing in response to God? How should we do that? Just as moments in your life are marked with song, so too in the life of God's people. And the big takeaway from today that God wanted Israel to understand, the big takeaway that I want you and me to understand is this, that God wanted his people to understand he was their strength, he was their salvation so that he would become their song. 
He was their strength. He was their salvation. Also that he would become their song. And we're going to see today the moment that leads up to the very first song of praise in the whole Bible. The very first time when all of God's people as one group sang a song of gratitude and praise to God. And how it was birthed in a time of great fear, in a time of panic, in a time of stress, in a time of weakness. And all of that culminated in this song of praise to God. And we're going to answer the question, how then should we sing to God too? And if you're here today and you've never really thought about singing and God and singing Christianity and what that means, and it's great to have you with us. And I hope today that you just think about it with us for a few moments now, what it means to sing, why Christians sing, why we're sad that we can't sing at the moment the way we'd like to, and that maybe you would join us too in singing the praise of Jesus as well for his salvation and his power as well. So won't you join us? But before, before we get to this song, we need to look at chapter 13 and 14 because chapter 15 where the song is only makes sense in light of those two chapters. So let's start there. And the first thing that we're going to kick around is that God knows their weakness. Then we're going to see how God became their strength and then how God becomes their song. But first of all, God knows their weakness and they leave Egypt. We read this in chapter 13, 17 that God didn't lead them on the road through the Philistine country. That was, that was the shortest way. He actually led them a longer way. For God said, if they face war, they will become, they'll change their minds, in fact, and they might return to Egypt. You know, the very first moment that God's people embark in this new life with him outside of Egypt, God's care is immediately evident, isn't it? He knows his people better than they know themselves, in fact. So much so, even though in verse 18 it says they're prepared for war, God says, hmm, I think if you guys get into any conflict, you're going to be too tempted to run back to Egypt. So what I'm going to do is lead you on a longer, more twisted, windy path. After all, they're a bunch of slaves. They're not the most well-oiled military machine. They were brick-building slaves. They might have a few bricks in their bags and throw them at someone. They're not going to be the most powerful, equipped army at this stage. So God knows that. And then if we jump down to verse 21 and 22, we see how God leads his people here. He leads them by a messenger, which is Moses, and also by miracle. The pillar of cloud and fire. The fire and the cloud. God's very presence right there, visibly, visibly going before his people, behind them, in front of them. God is taking these people into places they do not know, but filled with his presence and glory. They would always walk where God has just trodden if he's leading them with the pillar of fire. And even in the dark of night, the blazing fire of God could be seen. Dark is not dark to God. And all of that is a visible reminder that God is with them. Instead of being oppressed by Egypt in slavery, their God now leads and guides them for their good and his own glory. Egypt, it was only ever for Pharaoh's glory, right? And not their good, you see. And God does this today. In the sense that God knows my weaknesses. He knows my flaws. He looks at my life and he says, all the 10,000 possibilities that could come my way, no matter how ready I am to face life and all its challenges, God looks at it and says, "Hmm, I'm going to lead you, Luke, this way. Because I know you better than you know yourself. Even when it doesn't look like the simplest way. 
Even when God gives me more than I can handle in life, overwhelms me in fact, his way is the best way because our God knows all our weaknesses. But he's not just aware of that. He knows my limits for sure, but he's interested in his grace transforming and helping me appreciate his glory, not my comfort. And most often God does that by bringing conflict and burdens into my life so that he can be the one who lifts them and take them away. And you know, God's about to do that here as well. He knows full well what his people are like. He knows the weaknesses. But look at chapter 14. As God now becomes their strength. Remember, we're heading toward them singing a song of gratitude and praise. This is where it's going. But right now, they don't know that. So God becomes their strength. He says in verse 2 and 3, he says, tell the Israelites to, to turn around, go back the other way, and camp with the Red Sea in front of you. And um, Egypt's going to think that you're confused and lost and chase after you. The exact location where this was, the Red Sea crossing, there's three possible ways that scholars think it, where it could be. It's been lost to time, the exact place they crossed over to. But it's clear that God leads into a very strange place after all. Oh, in front of them is the Red Sea. Behind them is a desert. There really isn't any place left to go. And not only God is leading them a longer way around, he's also leading them into a weak place purposely designed by him. It's very explicitly, I'm going to lead you to a place that is full of weakness and fear. And what's more, God then provokes Pharaoh's heart again, He hardens it in verse 4, so Pharaoh decides to chase them down to get the slaves back. It's an incredible change of mind, isn't it? But after all, it's very consistent with Pharaoh. If you remember, after each plague, Pharaoh said, oh, you can go, and then Moses says, great, oh, by the way, sorry, you can't, he says. It's very consistent with Pharaoh, and this time is no different. They just actually left before Pharaoh changed his mind. And then in verse 10, look down with me at verse 10 in chapter 14. Pharaoh approached them, And God's people were terrified and cried out to the Lord. Do you see what God has done? God has closed up any ordinary way of escape to demonstrate his power. But it's a terrifying moment, isn't it? Imagine seeing the nation you left. Military strong nation of the day. You've left them and they're chasing you down. Angry, powerful, coming at you. And then they cry out to God. Exactly the same word used back in chapter 2 when they were in pain and suffering when they cried out to the Lord and God heard them when it happens again. Do you know what just felt like slavery all over again, doesn't it? To have the past life coming up over the horizon or new challenges breathing down your neck, it just feels like slavery. And the trouble is, just because God has done something wonderful and amazing in the past doesn't mean it translates to future trust, does it? I mean, in one part of my life and your life, I'm sure you can testify, you've trusted God, perhaps with your job, or with a medical challenge you've had or something. You trusted God. Yet in another part of your life, that trust doesn't translate. You freak out. You doubt God's goodness. You doubt God's power. And just like in those moments that you and me face, in here, the people's emotions are dancing all over the place. And they can't make heads or tails of what's happening. And they cry out to God. And fear rules their hearts. Look in verse 11 and 12. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt you let us out here, Moses? 
You're going to kill us. You've led us out here just to die. Why? We told you we didn't actually want to go. Don't you remember that, Moses? We told you. Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. That's better than going out here. Do you know what they've done? They've reinterpreted their whole Exodus event in light of their fear. They never said that. They never said that. They came to the conclusion that Moses just wanted them to die, that they actually told him to go away, when they never did. They'd rather be slaves at this moment than have to have this moment of oppression and fear. I've never been this afraid before. I was thinking this week, have I ever been that scared that I reinterpret an event of my life in light of that fear? And I couldn't. I couldn't think of it. Maybe you have. All I know is it sounds very frightening. moment of being crippled by anguish or, or something like that. Maybe I've had that. I couldn't recall it. But I know... I know that what fear does, and fear often extinguishes any sort of hope that you have, and our minds and our hearts run wild, and that's exactly what's happening here. Maybe you can relate to that really well. You see, the truth is, as sinful people, we don't actually understand what it means for God to be our strength and our salvation until we're put in a weak enough place where God is our only option. But, you know, thankfully, God has a different perspective on this. So in all of this, Moses gets what's going on. Moses understands what God's up to here. He's starting to see a pattern in God's people and a pattern in how God works. And we'll see more of this in the next few weeks when they grumble in the desert. But look at his reply in verse 13 and 14. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the salvation of the Lord, how he'll bring it today. You'll never see these Egyptians again. It struck me as we had the Bible reading effect. Moses did not know what God was going to do, yet he said, you will not see them again. He gets what God's up to. He urges them to be quiet, to stop talking. Just imagine a million people forming opinions, whispering fears, what if this, what if that. Quite frankly, it sounds like chaos, doesn't it? And Moses points them beyond their fears to God. That's why he says, see, see what God's going to see the deliverance the Lord will bring. Change your perspective. Stop looking at what's going on around you and look to God instead because God will fight for you. God will fight for them. And boy, doesn't God do that here? Trapped and weak. They're faithless right up to the moment they walk through the Red Sea. Did you realize that? There is no faith in these people. The most faithless thing they do is cry out to God in, in pain. Their rescue has nothing to do with their faith, nothing to do with them getting it together at all. It's all of God. In 1421, it's the Lord who drives back the sea with the strong wind. The cloud of God's presence goes behind them to shield them for the night. His fire lights the way on the dark, dry ground of the sea. And as they cross the sea... But, you know, their salvation isn't just about rescue, it's also about defeat, isn't it? There comes the moment when it all goes terribly wrong for Egypt. Their wheels get stuck and they quickly realize they're in trouble. And then that decisive blow comes. As the hand of God wielding creation comes in verse 28, the waters flowed back and covered the Egyptians. The entire army, not one of them survived. You know, salvation for God's people meant defeat and death for Egypt. That's the pattern that God has just started to set up, hasn't he? We saw it with the lamb, now we see it here. But you know, this is 
this is really tricky to swallow. Like, this is not easy to think. God just killed at least 600 people in a flood of water over the top of him. That's pretty confronting. And he was glorified in it as well. Did you get that? I will glorify myself through the death of the Egyptians. It says that. It's hard. What do we do with that? I think we struggle with these concepts of God that a God would do this, that our God would do that, because it testifies to part of his character, which we struggle to grasp at times. The fact that God is both kind and severe. That God is both gracious and good, as well as being just and holy. This is what Jeff spoke about over the last three weeks. God is absolutely sovereign. But that never means our responsibility as humans is curtailed. You and me, we rebel, we choose, we obey, we believe, and we're held accountable for those decisions. Remember, God gave Pharaoh, after every plague, a chance to repent. He didn't. Yet, God's glory is not contingent on people responding favorably to him, is it? God's sovereignty is very broad. Inclusive in both life and death, judgment and mercy, God will glorify himself in all of that. After all, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and wanting to make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, like Egypt? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? says Romans chapter 9. See, the miracle points to and witnesses to the God behind it, to his lordship over all creation, all people and all things. And just look at the effect it has on his people. They stand on the other side and finally, finally understand who their God is. That day, it says in verse 30, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And when they saw the Lord's hand on display, they feared and put their trust in him. All the miracles, all, all created fear and trust in his people. And it leads to a response. And this is chapter 15, a song of praise. God becomes their song. The first verse says, then, then Moses and Israel sang this song. The very first thing they do, they don't, don't miss it. They sing a song of victory. For the first time ever, all of God's people in one place Praise and sing a song of victory to God of his salvation, of him defeating evil and his power and his love. Now we get this in some respect. What's the first thing that happens when Adelaide win or any sporting team win? You hear a cheer and then the song comes blaring over the PA, right? And everyone sings it and it just provokes your mind and your heart to the joy of the victory because, you know, they won or we won or we lost or we don't hear it in the losing team, but, you know, we won and and there's cheering and celebration and tears and it's victory and people run around and they lift up their shirts and go crazy and it's, you know, I don't like sport very much. I hope that's what they do, but I, I did axe throwing the other week and um, it's brilliant. You should do it. Please go throw axes. You can do it in the old coat factory. It's my favorite thing at the moment. Um, but it's great. It's a one-person sport. You just throw axes at a target. It's so good. Anyway, and I cheered when I hit it in the Yes, I got it. Um, there's no songs playing, but I, I cheered. And it's, just, it's the same here when they sing the victory, but 10,000 times better than a sporting victory or me throwing an axe. You know, This is God's salvation and power. So look at the verse, rest of verse 1 and 2. 
It's all about God's strength, they sing, and his salvation. I'll sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and rider. He's hurled into the sea. And maybe you remember a song growing up that you used to sing that if you're old enough. He is my God. He's become my salvation. I will praise him. You know, remember, they have an army. Remember? It was no good. They realize now that it's not necessary. God is the strong one, the one to save them. So they go on to say, how God? How God is, how is God your strength? And in verse three, they say, he's a warrior. And then in verse four to ten, it describes how God is a warrior. And they just recite, recant. They're not recant, remember, recall, the waters crushing Egypt. This is how my God is a warrior. His strong hand destroys the enemy, which leads them to say in verse eleven, who is like you, God? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? As verse 12 said, you stretched out your hands, your right hand, and the earth swallowed your enemies. The wonder they see is that Egypt has been utterly shattered, utterly destroyed. You know, you never hear of Egypt again in the scriptures until the time of uh, David, I think it is. For a whole lot of years, they just cast to the side now at this moment. What's more, this strong arm of God is used redemptively in the next verse 13 because God's love of his people leads them to his place and his presence, protects them, guarantees their safety. In your unfailing love, you, you will lead the people you've redeemed. In your strength, you'll guide them to your holy dwelling. A place like Eden, a sanctuary where God's people will live with him and the final declaration of verse 18 that the Lord reigns. You know, this is an incredible song. It's birthed from experience. It's birthed from weakness, from fear, from witnessing and seeing that God is their strength and power. And it's a song that is about God, a movement from victory to results as they sing about their salvation. But did you see how they did that? They didn't make it about themselves. The salvation, their salvation, is a byproduct of God's power and victory of God's glory and love. In the same way that a car produces heat, no one ever buys a car because it makes the engine, the heat is a, you know, you don't buy a car for the heat that it produces, right? It's a byproduct of that and it benefits you in the winter because you get the warm air. And so too, our salvation is always in the matrix of God's glory being upheld in the universe. To say it another way, You and me are not the end result of our salvation. God is. We benefit. Of course we do. But it always terminates back on God, right? Always terminates back on God. God has saved me for his glory. And my good, but for his glory. I will sing a song of praise to God that he has saved me and he is glorious and good. Not that I am glorious and good that he saved me. Their salvation song reflects that, you see. What they've done is put their theology of God and their experience of God together in a song. A song that's filled with praise of God defeating evil and his kindness and love in rescuing them. And I wonder, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about singing the fact that God is a warrior overcoming evil? Not just overcoming it, but killing evil, in fact. Maybe you're thinking at the moment, Luke, I like the idea of praising God, but the good God. I don't like the idea of this God drowning an army or I'm thankful that God isn't like the God of the Old Testament today because I like my God a little more domesticated, a little bit nicer. But you do realize that you will sing just in fact that. If you go to Revelation 19, the first three verses, 
you and me will actually sing one day, praise for God for defeating and throwing down evil. And, and in fact, it's an even louder, larger crowd of people doing it this time than they did in Egypt. Look at the start of Revelation 19, 1 and 3. This is John, and he says, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. The roar of a multitude shouting. And what are they shouting, John? Heaven's ringing with the voice of millions and thousands of voices. And it sounds like Exodus 15, because they start off, this is what they say, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to God. Why do power and salvation and glory belong to God? Look at the next part. For true and just are his judgments. What are God's judgments? He is condemned the great prostitute, which is a nickname for Babylon, actually, if you go back to Revelation 18 who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of his servants. And just to be crystal clear what we're praising God for here, in case you're not getting it yet, John says, and again they shouted, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And you and me will sing that one day. And I get it, it's uncomfortable to think you're going to praise God for defeating evil in that way. Violently, in fact. The smoke of her going up forever. What we have to remember is that praise of God is never coming from a superiority complex in us. Like we feel at a football match. This is where the sporting analogy falls down horribly. Because when you sing, we won, you feel better than the other team because you performed better. They kicked more goals or they threw more axes better. You know, they, they did better. So you praise them because you had power and ability and strength. Crows have won twice, I found out yesterday. They're better. Well, they're still at the bottom of the ladder, but they're better than they were at the start of the season. We praise God always, though, from a position of sheer grace towards us utter grace towards us, that unless God would have mercy, we have the same fate too. Revelation 18.21 says, Babylon's thrown in the sea, never to be seen from again, and that would be us, if not for the grace of God. And indeed, God has been gracious, has he not? Just think back to the cross of Jesus, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we praise humbly, because if not for the grace of God, we too would be separated from him. It makes us understand how offensive sin really is and that for God to be holy and just, he has to overcome and defeat evil, doesn't he? Which is why we see in Revelation 19 and Exodus 15, we always praise God for his salvation, for his glory and holiness and his true and just judgments. I read this morning in my Bible reading, the very end of the psalm, Psalm 56, and and the question that was posed is, "Does does not the people of the earth want a God who is going to judge rightly? And I think the answer is yes, we do. And then we see the God of the Bible and what that looks like. It should make us tremble, but also reach out to that same God for mercy and grace. You see, to sing there is no other name but Jesus is to see the death of Jesus on the cross, God's judgment of my sin nailed in history, sing that his strong hands have swallowed up my evil in Jesus' wounds, and that one day... All evil in all the world will be judged and we will praise God that he is just and renders justice. And you and me, we get to be on the grace-receiving end of that. And you can be that today if you're not. And so here's what I want us to see. The Red Sea is good news because it's here that God's people are saved by his mercy at the very same place that God shows judgment and overcame evil. 
They both went through the waters, some to new life, others to death. And once they saw that, they sang. They sang about this salvation. So the question at the start was how should we sing in response to God? We'll sing our salvation. Our corporate, altogether salvation in Jesus, like they did. We sing of a victory like no other. The place where both my sin was judged and my soul saved on the cross. We praise God for his power on display there. We praise God that in your weakness, he is your strength. That in his unfailing love, he will lead his people he has redeemed. Not with a cloud, with his own spirit and his word. And he will guard and guide and protect us until we enter into the new creation, the sanctuary that will restore back to the Garden of Eden like on the whole of the world. And we do that living every day with the theme song of our life, the song of praise to God. And do you know what that does to sing to God this way? Accurate songs about who God is. It teaches us. Singing is a way to teach us. And so let me end with this. As we sing, we should have greater clarity in thinking and feeling about the God of our salvation. Both thinking and both feeling about the God of our salvation. And so I wonder, today in your car on the way home, as we're going to be sung to in a moment, do the songs that you listen to, do they draw you closer to God? Not just through the music, that's not a bad thing, but other words. Do they cause you to think about your salvation, about who God is? Last time in Exodus, if you remember back then, the families were to tell their children why they had to sacrifice the lamb. And today I wonder, fathers and mothers, and this applies to me, do my children know the songs of God today? Do I sing the good good songs to my children? Or not me personally, because I can't sing, but do I have them on playing so they can hear who God is and the truth of who God is? Do songs teach them? What about us? Do the songs we? It doesn't matter what song, you, what sound of music you like. That's really not important. But do the words? Do they teach you about who God is through singing? Do we appreciate songs of praise to our God? I remember how wonderful it can be to do this. I was in Sydney last year before COVID happened and, and at a church planning conference and we start the day off with songs and praise to God. There's only a few. But to sit there and, and sing, there's two songs, Holy God, which we'll do today, and then another one by Trevor Hodge, You Alone. And to sing about the Holy God and to hear other voices doing that. To sing about God's salvation going to all the nations. And the nations need to know that there is a holy God. And to sing that truth. You can read that in the Bible. And we do. And we spent the rest of the day kicking around what it means to go on mission for God. And how to have churches that were healthy and growing and vibrant to take the gospel. But then to sing that truth. Oh, and it doesn't, it, it does something to that what we read and what we believe and what we know to sing that, to praise God, it's a natural response. We can think a thought, we can feel a feeling, but songs enable us to feel a thought and that's what they do. And so I wonder, over coffee today for the first time, over coffee, ask someone what their favorite song of praise is. Why is that? Maybe get to know a new song of praise, but think about why do you like the songs you do? When me and Natasha were dating, I used to drive around a lot and, and talk and listen to music in the car and, and music about Jesus too and and one day we were driving up McIntyre Road and this song came on and I don't even remember the song and I, I was thinking this is great and it was one of those nine minute songs and it finished. Tasha looked at me and said, well that was stupid. I said, what? She goes, you do realise they didn't actually say anything in that song. I said, yes they did. And she goes, well tell me what they said. And 
oh, it just sounded really good. She goes, yeah, it did sound really nice, but did you actually think about what the words were saying? I said, no, I just like the music. He goes, well, maybe think about the words and what they mean and then enjoy the music. And I've never listened to that song since because now I hear it and I go, oh, it grates on me because I realize that it's actually not about the music, it's about the words. Now, now, I understand that music does, you know, help you to think and reflect, and so that's not a bad thing, but it's the words that go with it. And so, why do you like the songs you do? Have you ever sung a song about God defeating evil and praise God for that? Have you ever sung a song of victory, that God is holy, and you mean it, that he is truly holy? I challenge myself with that this week, and maybe you as well. So, Peter, can you come up and lead us in prayer? We're going to think and reflect and pause on who our God is now. And then we're going to sing and be sung to. And we will sing together one day with loud voices as soon as we can. But don't neglect the fact that we can sing now as the people of God and be sung to. So Peter's going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to hear Holy God through the band as we finish our service today. Thanks, Peter.